fall into the theology bit. Welcome to The Theology Pit. This is Theology Out of Pittsburgh, and not like a bottomless pit, where they say if you fall into a bottomless pit, you'll die of dehydration. I'm, of course, your host, Samson Kovach, and we are on episode number 11 of our journey through the application of the atonement, how we understand Christ's atonement to be applied to us, how we've understood it historically, how um, the people of God have understood it. And uh, we've, boy, we've really been going um, in a nice straight line here, it seems. I hope that it's been comprehensive. I understand that if you have been studying theology and you study history and historical theology, you realize that I leave out a ton of stuff. And I understand that. I I just, I can't, I can't fit it all in. Um, These podcasts would go so long. We're episode 11 here, and we're going to spend time in history today, much like how we did looking at the philosophy and the worldview of the second, third, fourth centuries. We have to do that again here, um, looking at the philosophy of the 14th, 15th, and 16th centuries. Um, So we can kind of get an idea of what's going on, uh, who the major players are, and what happened, because... A couple episodes ago, we discussed um, the uh, more or less the, the the Eucharist is what we were talking about. Um, we were talking about the sacramental system, the uh, satisfaction view of the atonement, why it was so necessary for the bread and wine to be the body and blood of Christ, what that sacrifice meant, what was going on behind it, and uh, then we moved on to election. And part of the reason why is because whenever you look at the order of salvation, uh, whether it's from a Protestant view or a uh, Roman view, it's going to start with election, whether it's conditional or unconditional. It's going to look at predestination. It's going to get those understandings. But I wanted to kind of fit that in because I think it was important. I think that that was a good spot to put it in, you know, for that understanding. And it really kind of hit home with the conditional aspect of salvation. The fact that we see it as, or the church has seen it as conditional, or the people of God have seen it as conditional uh, for a long time. And now we're going to move into, well, how did they behave when everybody thought that way? So if you've been following me here in the Theology Pit, and you've been following the Pit of Conception, um, you know that you can email me at any time, samson at samsonstick.com. You can leave notes on my Facebook page, The Theology Pit. Um, You can leave comments um, at samsonstick.com in the Theology Pit section under where these... um, podcasts are stored on the on the page on the on the blog page i usually don't write too much on there maybe i'll write just a little summary a little thing here or there but um you know let's kind of talk about what it the the podcast um is dealing with that particular podcast you can leave messages there also but the difference is that those ones only stay up 10 days after what i've done so generally if you listen to it throughout the week 
you have you know pretty much a, a couple days after the next one um, to uh, comment on on the old one. Um, but in talking about uh, what was going on at this point, I mean, more or less, the entire church is sort of of one of accord, of one of one belief system. Now there are some separation, a little bit of separation between the East and the West Church. And at this time in the 14th century, that gulf is just a little bit bigger because like in the 7th century, 8th century, 9th century, you had um, Islam come through uh, Northern Africa and wipe out the different bishoprics that were in um, Africa. Um, you had uh, Alexander, um, Alexandria. You had, I'm trying to remember these off the top of my head here, which ones, which ones they were. Um, uh, Hippo. Um, I don't know if Hippo was a, a bishopric though, but I remember being in there because that's where um, one of the church fathers was from. Anyways, um, you had that happening. And an interesting side note that you know I'll, I'll kind of be bringing out a little bit here uh, later on in this podcast is that a lot of really good manuscripts of the New Testament were um, in Alexandria, and and so those manuscripts got got pushed um, to the east, and then you know started moving up north a little bit, and then. Um, when Islam came through again in the 11th and 12th centuries, um, wiping out, um, you know, of course, uh, uh, Jerusalem, Antioch, um, Constantinople, it pushed those manuscripts west. And that'll, that'll come about later. Not just the, like New Testament um, manuscripts, all sorts of ancient literature, um, old Latin um, different different languages of, of the philosophers and, and that sort of thing. Now, when we talk about this time period that we're getting into here, the uh, 14th, 15th, 16th century, you know, we have to understand what kind of world we're talking about, what was happening, because this is right before the Reformation, and we're this is going to be our like kind of historical segue into the uh, the Reformation, because a lot of people have this um, misconception. It's, in my opinion, a a popular misconception. I've held to it at times is that, um, that the the church is completely static in its practice and it's, and in its worship until the reformation. It's like what you see in a Roman Catholic liturgy is what's always been. And that's not always been true. Um, Some of the form of liturgical worship has been there, but the dogmas and the doctrines and um, the thought process, the ideas haven't. Um, they have been, uh, you could say, a little more fluid. I mean, uh, people are people. Think about how the Protestant church is right now. Um, imagine if all the Protestant churches were just considered the Protestant church, okay? But within those Protestant churches, you had different disciplines or different orders. You had the Baptist order. You had the Presbyterian order. You had the Pentecostal order, the Lutheran order, the Anglican order. But they were all under this Protestant. They're just one Protestant church, just one one church by itself. 
That's the way the Catholic Church was at this time. Um, you know, and another thing that we're under the impression of is that the laity are being subject or subjected in those in those in charge. Let me say that better. I'm stumbling over my words here. We are under the impression that the laity are being subjected to those who are in charge, that it's as though the magisterium um, are coming and saying, you have to do this, you have to do that, you have to pray on these certain days, you have to go to mass, you have to um, give to the church, you have to give money to the church, you have to pay a, a tax, you have to pay a tithe. Um, you have to do these penance, you have to do this stuff. And it wasn't like that. We didn't have that sort of thing going on. It might've gotten a little more strict in some areas than in others, but that was mainly a perspective due to economics at the time. What was happening is that the bubonic plague was ripping through uh, Europe and even, you know, into, into China through different trades and stuff like that being um, trans, transmitted by you know, fleas and those sort of things. And um, it, this, it was also called the Black Death because of the way that it looked and bubonic because of these bubbles that would come up. That's where the, the term comes from for this. And what happened is that the bubonic plague, I think it lasted for, gee, I want to say like 100 years or so, 150 years maybe, it wiped out 25 million uh, people in Europe. That was roughly a third, I think I, I read somewhere, a third of the population of all of Europe um, was you know, wiped out by this. If you know your eschatology and you know your, your book of Revelation, you're like, whoa, hey, I've heard that number, a third of the population being wiped out. Yeah, it does kind of ring a bell. But when we get in eschatology, maybe we'll pull those numbers up again. But here's what's going on. Some places were hit harder by the plague. You could have had up to like 70% of the people die. Okay? Some places, 40%. Now, what's going on because of that? is, well, number one, there's fewer people in the areas, which make the areas a little more tight-knit. You kind of know your neighbor a little better. You know you know who people are. Um, the average town, the average city, let's, let's just start with cities. The average city was around maybe 20,000 people, somewhere around there, um, the big city, there were a few cities that were really, really big. And this is spread out between, like, like France and um, England and Spain and Germany, Italy. Hey, maybe have four of them, four cities, five cities kind of spread, you know, amongst it, depending on where they drew the lines for, you know, the, uh, the, the, the countries. Um, they might have had 200,000 people that live there. Now, just to put that in a little bit of perspective for us, I live in the Pittsburgh area, okay? Pittsburgh itself, in what's considered the Pittsburgh area, has over 300,000 people in it. Now, people would not consider Pittsburgh to be like a huge 
city. But we're talking, you know, they had uh, Pittsburgh has a hundred thousand more people living in it than the biggest city in Europe at the time because of the plague. So you have these small villages, you had these isolated places. And another thing that you had was a demand for workers. So people could go and they could start, you know, talking with the landowners and those sort of things and demanding, hey, you pay us more for the work that we're doing because, you know, we're covering all this stuff. And if you don't, we'll just go somewhere else where they will pay us. It's kind of the free market system. They're working. Some landowners didn't want to do it. You know, they left. And, you know, that, so that became a problem. So what you would have here is that more people were working, very low unemployment rate in that sense. Um, you would have more of a middle class, so to speak, more cash flow. Okay. Now, keep this in your head. Okay. This kind of, let's say, Let's just let's just call it power influence. Let's, let's call it what it is. All right. If these people didn't like what was going on, they could withhold from the people in authority. They had the money to put up who they wanted. They had the money to um, more or less have an influence on in what was going on. If the church was imposing some rigid religiosity on them that they didn't like. They had the power to change it. But that's not what happened. It's, uh, and we have to talk about this because we have to get an understanding of why the Reformation came about and why there was a division so to speak, between people who wanted to stay Roman Catholic and people who wanted to become Protestant. Why, why would you have that division? And with the people, okay, let me kind of bring this back into our theology here and what we were talking about, conditional election. God provided a way for people to merit his favor, to merit God's grace so that it's poured into them. Okay, and it's changing them. His grace is changing your heart, and therefore you are becoming deified. You are being transformed into the likeness of Christ. You are growing towards God. You are working out your salvation. You are becoming more and more holy. You're participating in this election, this this people. People like that. If you knew that there was something that you could do that pleased God and it made you a better person at the same time, wouldn't you want to do that? And that's what they're thinking. They're thinking, yeah, I, I definitely did. Well, well, what can I do? Well, you know, you can, um, I mean, they really didn't have a problem with purgatory. They're like, oh, okay, well, purgatory, that's a blessing that God gives in order for us, you know, to go to heaven because nothing impure can stand before God. And that's the necessity of purgatory. I don't know if I've explained purgatory on these podcasts before. Um, 
I don't I don't necessarily want to go into it right now, but I'm, I just want you to know that people didn't really have a problem with it, the idea of purgatory, the concept of it, because this was something that God provided. So you can go to heaven. People who go to purgatory aren't going to hell. If you told somebody that one of their loved ones was in purgatory, they'd be like, all right, great. That means that they're going to go to heaven and I'll see them in heaven too once I get through purgatory. It's a cleansing and then I'll be pure and I'll be completely acceptable to God and this is what Christ has provided. But let's say that you know you can do things to not only atone for your sins or, or I shouldn't say that uh, merit God's favor through Christ's atonement and have that uh, applied to you. Let's say you can do it by giving money to the church for a building campaign. Okay, and say, you know what, our local parish here, they need a new roof or whatever. I'm going to give money for that new roof. I'm going to give money for some new stained glass. I'm going to give money for some new statues of, of saints. Let's, let's really adorn our churches. Let's, let's really do this stuff. And people are giving and giving and giving. And they're seeing this as a way that they are laboring for God. And they're getting these blessings from it. Um, the churches, of course are giving the people what they want. Um, you know, the, the, the popes are saying, hey, you know what? You're, you're making it possible. Not only do we have these churches and we have like all this stuff going on and we have, we have all these campaigns, we can fund monasteries. Um, we can have um, independent, uh, non-ordained people going out and doing things. We can fund mission trips. We can have, you know, friars roaming around in, in like the countryside and stuff, like listening to confessions. We can do everything. You have the Franciscans listening to things, um, you know, doing their, uh, their work. You have the, uh, Dominicans doing their work. Um, you know, everything's just, you know, happening. Everything's going on and the people are funding this and they're loving it. And, you know, I mean, we sit on this side right now of, of history where we are and we say, well, I mean, it, it, that does kind of sound foreign to us in a way. And is that really what God wants? Well, there may be a biblical precedent for some of this stuff. If we take a look at back in the book of Exodus, um, in chapter 36, um, it was uh, commissioned that um, all the skilled workers, everybody who was able to um, to be skilled and, and to uh, do things, were put in place to um, do work. Um, let me see. It says in, I think, verse 1 here. Um, yeah. Um, the skill the ability, all that knew how to do work for the service of the sanctuary and to the, do the work according um, to all that the Lord has commanded. So people who were laborers, um, they were going and saying, all right, like, let's, let's do this thing. We're donating our, our time. We're really going to work too. We're going to stop what we're doing and, and we're going to do that. But they needed supplies. They needed, you know, people to, to donate things in order for this to happen. You know, food and water, of course, to take care of their family, like, you know, clothing, um, plus the supplies to build stuff. They needed the wood. They needed the tools. They needed like all these different things. And so, at this time in Exodus, the people of God gave. The Israelites started giving and giving and giving and giving to the point where um, the, uh, the, the people working, the skilled laborers came and told Moses, the people are bringing much more than is needed for the completion of the work to which the Lord commanded us to do. 
And then verse six, Moses instructed them to take his message throughout the camp saying, let no man or woman do any more work for the offering for the sanctuary. So the people were restrained from bringing any more. Now the materials were more than enough for them to do all the work. Seems like we got have a repeat going on here. Okay. The, the population steadily starting to grow. It's very abundant. Okay. You have a lot of stuff going on now. When this happens, <coughs> excuse me, when this sort of thing happens, you, I want to say you tend to get lethargy that occurs. When everything's good, you get kind of lax with it. Pressure's not being put on you. It's different. Sorry, I take a drink there. It's different than when the church is under persecution, okay? It's different than, you know, you're doing things because you have to. Now everything's more relaxed. Like, you know, you're in a, you're in a, you know, all these countries around you are Christian. The princes and kings are all Christian, okay? And they're all more or less along with the, the one Catholic church, okay? So people are given to the church. All the stuff's getting built. And this is what's, that's, I always find this kind of interesting is that, you know, a couple hundred years after this, you have the iconoclasts that come up, um, Iconoclasts were people that destroyed the icons, the the pictures, the statues, any type of iconography, anything like that. And, um, you know, they were just they, they would wipe them out because they said, oh, do not make any graven images like, the, you know, this sort of thing. And, and I think that they're um, taking that scripture out of context. But that's that's for a different pit. But, you know, you have them destroying what the lay people actually commissioned to build. They pushed for this stuff to build. Um and, you know, they were more than happy to do it. I mean, people were just building stuff up. They're given to the church. Everything is just kind of kind of going. But, you know, you start to get these attitudes where the priests and the popes and the cardinals and the bishops and the princes, things start getting a little more uh, political, a little more divisive in a sense. I mean, even if things are going good and you have taxes on you, the clergy was exempt from paying the taxes. The clergy also had their own legal system. If you were a priest and you were accused of stealing, you wouldn't be tried in a, a public court. You'd be tried in a magisterial court. Um, if you were educated and most, I mean, most of the clergy, I would say all the, all the clergy was, you had a very high illiteracy rate among the people, which is another reason why they were donating so much because stained glass and things like that. Um, they could understand, they could see and, and, and know and kind of get the gospel through, get pictures. Also the commissioning. I mean, yeah, the, the printing press that came about at this time and the, the Bible was uh, being translated into the vernacular at the time. Um, people, if they couldn't read the Bible, they could have the Bible read to them. The, the Sunday um, gospel readings were printed. Um, the Psalms were printed. Devotionals were printed. You had all kinds of stuff where people were being educated. They may not be learning how to read for themselves, but people were reading to them. Now, when you have a... A, a system a, a, that's set up like this, um, there need to be laws and there need to be lawyers, of course, when you have laws. But if not everyone can read, well, a lot of times the priesthood would have to do double duty. And, you know, they would be neglecting their priestly duty in order to, you know, help 
practice law, help defend people, um, just doing clerical work, like, you know, that, that type stuff. Now, whenever the harvest is good and you have to pay taxes on it, eh, it kind of bothers you. It doesn't bother you that much, um, you know, that you have to pay the taxes. And when somebody, you know, if they're the clergy and they don't have to, you're like, well, okay, but they're working for God and, you know, I'm supporting them in this way. But then if they're not working for God and you're looking at it, you're like, all right, that's kind of, that grinds me just a little bit. Um, and then if it's a bad harvest season, but you still got to pay taxes and you still got to do that, that's when it starts grinding just a little bit more. And you're like, oh, you know what? No, this is, this is really getting on my nerves that the fact that they have to do this. Also, another thing that you had going on in this time period is a, a concept called simony, where people were able to buy bishoprics. They were able to buy offices. And, and I mean, these offices were paid. You, you, you got money for them. It was like a job. Um, you know, so they're, they're being paid. And then there was a pluralism that was happening also. Pluralism in the sense that a bishop could be the bishop over four different dioceses or bishoprics and collect payment for all four of them. And you know that he's not able to you know, service all of them like equally uh, and, and give his full attention, but yet he's able to sit back and collect this. You know, nepotism was big uh, also. You know, people giving uh, um, offices to family members, um, the princes choosing bishops sometimes, um, and the, the the popes just putting them in there. Um, and then you also had problems with, and, and this is what's interesting, is like we listen to that. What I'm about to say, we hear this nowadays, and we're like, ah, oh, scandal, this is crazy. Um, where you had, you know, bishops and popes and priests who had concubines. They would go see prostitutes. Um, some of them had, I mean, they had children, um, they would own, you know, holy relics. They would own property that they would give to their children. You had all the stuff and, and sometimes shady deals here and there. And that really didn't bother people that much. I mean, we listened to that and we're like, why the priests were doing what, how can they serve? If we had a priest doing that, it's like, Hey, you know, they were just a little more relaxed with it, but some people were not so relaxed with it. They were like, you know what? It's, it's, it's functioning. Okay. Things are functioning. All right. But it's not proper. We need to reform the church. Okay. We need to reform it. And these are problems. And so people would, you know, say we need to reform the church and you know, their changes need to be made. And the magisterial authority was like, yes, we agree. And they would get in the process and they would start doing things and they would try and alleviate this one thing here, one thing there. Um, you had, you know, the different emperors fighting over land, you had stuff fighting over, you know, different times and things like that. The Pope sometimes was in France and sometimes he would be in Italy. You know, you, you just had, you had stuff moving around is just a little bit more, uh, more fluid, but they were working towards reform very slowly. You had different priests that were coming about and, um, they were making points and they were saying things. And a lot of times the church was like, yeah, you know what? You're right. We really should be straightening up a little bit more. We should be doing this. And the church was slowly reforming. It was getting better. It was changing its behavior. It was changing the way that, um, it was, uh, acting the way that it was, um, 
practicing. The, it, it was kind of cleaning up. You know, we talked about orthodoxy, which is right belief, and orthopraxy, which is right practice. It's trying to get the orthopraxy back into play, you know? Well, in the this this earlier time we're going we're going to go to about like 1370s now and we have a schism that starts popping up at this time that really causes a an an, an issue uh in um in in the church and i'm going to be taking a lot of this here from uh history of the christian church by uh sheldon because I think that it spells it out chronologically better than any other church histories I've read on it. And I just like the, the things that he brings out. Okay. So um, what we have going on here in, um, in this time, in the, in the 1370s, is this. In 1378, Gregory Eleventh dies. And you get an election that has to take place in order for there to be a new pope. And so the Roman people were determined to have an Italian pope. And they reinforced their demand by fierce threatenings and by alarming demonstrations around the Hall of Conclave. Now, remember, you have the people who are influential within this point. So... So they decide, we don't want to have a French pope. We want to have an Italian pope. And we want the papacy back in Rome. That's what we want. And we're going to fight for it. And so they get their wish. But sometimes what you wish for is not necessarily the best thing. So the Italian Archbishop of Bari took the name of Urban VI. Okay, he's elected. Now, the Romans, they, they were happy about that. But it was a very temporary calm because this came at a huge price. All right. The people are allowed to push for this decision. And this is what you get when you have people that want what they want and what they get. The new pope had only been a few weeks in the chair of Peter. Now, the chair of Peter, it's, I mean, there is kind of an actual chair, but that's just what it's called when the, the, the bishop uh, of, of Rome uh, takes place as the, um, the first among equals sometimes is known, but he's also, you know, the, the pope is what we know of now because um, after Constantinople was sacked, uh, Rome was the only one left. Um, so we have the, the chair of Peter um, happening here. Um, so when... Uh, a storm destined to last for more than a generation broke upon the church. Among the causes precipitating the trouble, the character of the Pope next to the antagonism of the French and Italian interests was most conspicuous. As, um, as uh, historians have remarked, um, Urban VI was uh, dowered with every quality fitted to make him a demon of strife. This guy was rude, overbearing, and just a total jerk. I mean, he, uh, the cardinals that elected him were, like, they hated him, like, after he was elected. And they were, like, thinking, oh, man, what, uh, what, have, we, what have we done here, you know? Um, they, they're like, okay, we, uh, we, we screwed up. 
we're sorry, we messed up. And in France, like they were just like, oh, oh, you did? Oh, tell us about it. Tell us you know, how, how great that was. And they were like, oh, geez, listen, we we shouldn't have elected this guy. He is just, I mean, he's he, he's a, a savage. Like, you know, he, um, he just, you know, the first few days of his rule, um, the, the pastoral rod that he held became an instrument of unsparing tyranny. Among his expressions of savage severity were the torture and execution of five of his cardinals. Okay. Even his successor was guilty of shameless simony and nepotism. And we talked about, you know, a little bit of what that were. So they're like complaining that he's, he's putting the cardinals that put him in place to death. He's just, he's, 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 you know, he is so not nice Pope. Like he is awful. And the French, and, um, you know, and, and the, the Scottish and everyone, they're listening and they're like, oh, yeah, you know, you know, what we need to do. We need to have a council and we need to elect a new bishop. OK, so they um, they they get together and they elect a new bishop. And so now at this point in history, you have two bishops, you have two popes, you have two popes of Rome. Uh, are claiming to be the, the Pope of the entire church uh, at the same time, you know, kind of arguing with each other. And so this schism lasts uh, for, I believe, uh, I want to say like 40 years, I think it is, or maybe maybe longer than that. But like what you have is, okay, after Urban VI, okay, who the Italians um, elected as Pope, and yeah, as I, as I said before, uh, Boniface the ninth, innocent, the seventh, and then Gregory the 12th. Okay. Now at the same time, you have the contemporary representatives of the French and the Spanish. Okay. And they were, uh, Clement the seventh and Benedict the 13th. Okay. Now all they decided, okay, look, we, we have problems going on in the church and we're going to get to these problems a, a little bit later on with, with John Haas and John Whitecliffe. And, and, you know, what was happening with them, you know, this reformation that was uh, coming up, you know, that was that was taking place in, in what they were doing, these minor reformation. Well, I shouldn't say minor reformation. It was, it was a big deal, but not like the not like the German one that was happening. And you, we, you can understand why when we get to it with what's going on with the Germans. Um, but all attempts to heal the schism by inducing two popes has resigned to prove abortive. There seemed to be no way of escape from the fearful scandal and demoralization which afflicted Christendom, Christendom, except in resorting to a higher tribunal. Because what do you do whenever you have two monarchs fighting with each other? Well, you get together and you have a council, you have a conference, you have people uh, come together, and then you have them work out all their problems, okay? So they did this because they were like, well, why not? You know, the early, early church history, we have councils that came together and we have, like, you know, all this stuff, and it, it helped. So let's just, let's just do that. We have a right. We have a plenary right to do that for the health of the church, and it's what's necessary, okay? Even if it's for judging and disposing of a pope. We can do that. And we are going to discuss the outcome right after this. 
everyone. Thanks for listening to The Theology Pit. Do us a favor and check out our website at samsonstick.com. Tell us what you like or what you don't like and consider making a donation. Just send a buck to show your appreciation. It's more than just money. To us, it's an encouragement. samsonstick.com. Thanks again. Now back to the show. All right. So in 1409, we have the Council of Pisa that comes about. Now, this understanding and this council that comes together uh, was championed with special vigor by the Paris University. And I'm just putting that in there as a side note, because what comes out of uh, Paris and what comes out of France later on in the universities, I just want to kind of point out here that they are in favor of this whole understanding that council, a council can get together and look at these two popes and they more or less have the authority over the popes and they can throw them out and they can put in a new pope. So they decide, they get together and um, they dealt with the offending popes in a very summary manner, declaring them disposed as being notoriously guilty of schism, heresy and perjury whereby they had scandalized the whole church. Okay, they're condemning both of these popes for what they're doing. It was determined to fulfill its opportunity to carry through greatly needed reforms. To this end, pledges were enacted of the cardinals before they proceeded to elect a pope that the council should not be dissolved until it had appealed or until it had applied itself to redressing abuses. Pledges, however, proved to be no adequate certainty. So they were saying, not only are we going to put a new pope in place, but before this council's done, we got to deal with, you know, all these, you know, all these, this bad behavior that the church is going through. We have to reform the church. It's, it's got to happen. So um, the new pope, Alexander V, um, parried the demand for reform. He actually ignored it. He threw it out. He said, no, you're not going to do that. I'm the Pope. Everyone, you know, everyone's going to get behind me. I'm going to be the Pope. Okay. And then he dissolved the council. But what the problem was is that the other popes, they didn't listen. They didn't care. So now we have three popes. We have three different people, three different bishops claiming to be the Pope of the Catholic church. Okay. It, the, the intent of the Council of Pisa had failed completely, okay? Because the other popes refused to accept its sentence. They said, you're not pope. And they're like, yeah, we are. And it, they just they didn't care. And then the third one they elected, they were just like, well, he's like, well, you elected me, so I am pope. So they're just like, oh, man, okay, this is a, a problem here. Um, because where do taxes go to? Where do tithes go to? Where do, who has the papal authority, the power to tell churches what to do? Like, what's going on here? Okay, so the case was moreover aggravated by another disagreeable feature, and that's that Alexander V, who was elected, okay, soon died after the dissolution of the council. So he dissolved the council, and then he died soon after it. It was suspected, though. It was suspected that he was poisoned by, by a cardinal because they were like, we can't have three popes. This can't happen. Just, oh, we got to start over. we got to do this, okay? But the cardinal that they think poisoned him uh, became a successor, and that was uh, Pope John the Twenty Third. 
Okay, um, he was charged by his contemporaries with almost every nameable crime and was undoubtedly one of the vilest in the catalog of bad popes. So when you go through the history of bad popes, you're like the second, third pope at this time was said to be just awful. Okay, if you can follow that, the second, third pope. All right. So um, when when Pisa failed, another council came about called the Council of Constance. And um, this is uh, 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 in conveying this council, the recently elected emperor uh, bore a prominent part. And through John, I guess technically Pope John, Pope John the 23rd had reason to dread the action of the council assembled beyond its bounds in Italy. And so he brought it back to uh, back to uh, France, back to, um, you know, the area. Yes, more around. He got it out of Italy. Okay, it was that was a problem. That's where we're getting all this stuff. Pisa was obviously we can't have something there, and so he called for the council to be open November first, fourteen fourteen. Okay, so um, let's talk about the attendance of this council. Okay, who showed up? Now, here are the members and the following amount. Okay. There were about 18,000 that were said to have come. Now, again, remember what I said earlier in the podcast about the populations of this time? Okay, 20,000 was the average city. It's like you had an average city descending on Constance. Okay, now among these were dignitaries, okay, and there were three dignitaries that were t- bringing the title of patriarch with them. Look at the three popes. All right. 33 archbishops came with them. Then nearly 150 bishops, 124 abbots, and about 300 doctors of theology and canon law. Then you had many representatives of secular princes were also present. Everybody started coming. They're seeing these 18,000 come, and they're like, hey, what's going on here? Now, people really did enjoy their religion back then, okay? You had preachers that were like rock star preachers. Like, they would show up to preach. Like, they would hire. They would be, like, commissioned to come and, and you know, at a certain time of the year, like, okay, we got this preacher to come in and and some of them were so good because not only could they preach real well but they would do it in the vernacular of the preacher people that they were preaching to they wouldn't just do it in you know a new latin or anything they would be doing it in their language so the people were like yeah you guys are like rock stars love you woo so now you have like you know rock stars attending this thing you have like everybody like you know you're really into your religion you're really in your faith the church like everything and you've had all these problems with all these different popes and all this stuff going on and it's like well everybody wants to get there everybody wants to do this okay so it says that this council brought to its neighborhood somewhere between and they don't have these exact numbers but they say they estimate somewhere between 50 to 150,000 people almost the same amount as one of the few largest cities in Europe is descending on this place for this council. That's what a big deal this council is. That's what's you know, going on with it. Everybody is going to be paying attention to this council, okay? And this council is going to, you know, last a little bit of time. But um, 
Let's continue on. Dealing with the schism, the council was successful. Okay. Early in its sessions, the view um, that all three claimants of the papacy must be required to abdicate uh, came into the ascendant. So they were saying to them very early on, all three of you popes, none of you are any good. You're all out of here. Okay. We're the council. We got the people behind us. Everybody's here to see this. You guys, you know we can't have three popes. This isn't right. You're all done. You're all you're all gone. You're out of here. Okay. Um. So any disposition to recognize um, Pope John the twenty third, the the new third second pope, okay, uh, was hindered. Okay, by all reports of his criminal and dissolute practices. So everybody was just like, okay, he's the worst of the worst. Nobody wants him. He's out. Okay, we we can't stand him. All right. So um, any and all charity towards him was totally canceled um, by his flight from Constance. Like he just like took off and the evident design to break up the council. He was trying to get this stopped and they just got rid of him. He was gone. He was uh, formally disposed of in um, uh, May 29th, 1415. All right. He's he's gone. Okay. About a month later. Uh, Gregory the 12th voluntarily quit. He said, all right, you know what? Yeah, I saw what you did with him. Obviously, this is not a winning case. I stepped down. I'm done being Pope. Okay. And so only, you know, Benedict the 13th was left alone. Okay. And he's trying to make the argument here. Well, I'm Pope. They all, they, they both left. So I'm Pope. I'm, I should be original Pope anyways. I'm Pope. Okay. I'm Pope. You know, I'm in the line of original Pope. So he stubbornly refused to yield um, his claim. Okay. And so for, you know, two years, he's like, I'm not going anywhere. I am freaking Pope. I am Pope. And, you know, the council's conveying over these years. And they're like, you know what? No, you're out of here. And in July 26, 1417, they got rid of him. Okay. Now the council had to take matters into its own hands. There is no head of the church. There is no Pope. There is just this ecumenical council or this. uh, And some people wouldn't want me calling it ecumenical council, but this is the big council. Okay. Everybody is here. All right. This is, you know, a representation of all of Christendom, at least in the West is here. And they are saying, Hey, we got this authority. We're, you know, we're, we're going to do this stuff. So, um, they were of the opinion that they need to make the most of this opportunity. Okay. And so without waiting to elect a Pope, um, who would very likely block any wheels of reform that they wanted to do. Um, they said at once we should legislate against the abuses in the church and the evils in the church. All right. So let's get, let's straighten stuff out. Let's reform the church first and then we will elect a Pope. Okay. We, we can, we can do this. And so others argued that, okay, you know what, if, if you want to do that and you want to reform the church, you really should do it with a Pope. You know, because the, the the chair of Peter, you this this needs to have a pope to happen in cooperation with the council, okay? And there was a division on the subject. It was not very different from that which took place at the um, uh, at a decisive crisis, like you know, a, a century later. Uh, but the German and English nations were in favor of postponing um, the election of a pope. Of course, they were because why? I mean, think about it. You have a pope in place in Italy, okay? Where's your money going? Well, technically to a foreign uh, nation, all right? 
Well, but if you're Italian and you have a pope in France or in Germany, well, now your money's going to a different place. So everyone kind of has a stake in this. It's sort of like a national pride in, in a way. But think about it. You know, if we, you know, all our money's going up to Canada and the good stuff's happening in Canada. And here we are in the United States going, hey, some of that money should be here. Well, why don't we just bring, you know, the, the main person here and do this? Okay. But their preference uh, was uh, overborne by the, represent- by the representatives of the Italian and the Spanish nations, and in part those of the French nation. Okay? The cardinals in the union with delegates from several nations were authorized to proceed in an election, and the choice fell upon uh, the Cardinal Colonna. He's known as Martin V, okay? Pope Martin V. Um, and it took no time at all to see that what happened in Pisa was about to be repeated, okay? Because, again, let's say you have five different groups here, okay? You got, you know, Italy, you got Spain, you got uh, France, you got Germany, and you got England, and they all got a dog in this fight. And so a couple of them say, nope, elect a pope, and they do. And the other one's saying, we don't like that pope. Maybe we want another pope. All right. So they totally wanted to do it again. Okay. And, and they were just like, no, you know, okay. So what happened um, was that the, the, this council um, was also um, trying to establish its authority, uh, you know, along with the Pope, because they don't want a Pope ruling. They don't want other people pushing for it. They don't want they, they don't want any outside influences. They don't want people to say, no, we want other Popes elected. They're saying, no, our council, that this council right here that is making this decision has come together by the power of the Holy Ghost, that God wants this council to do these things, okay? And so at their fourth and fifth sessions, um, this is an excerpt from what they wrote, that the con- the Council of Constance... Um, lawfully assembled in the name of the Holy Ghost and forming an ecumenical council representing the Catholic Church has its power immediately from Jesus Christ. Okay, that's interesting because they're saying not from the Pope, not from anyone else, but immediately from Jesus Christ is where this council is getting its authority from, to which every person of whatever rank and dignity, the papal itself included, is bound to yield obedience in those things which concern the faith the exhortation of the aforesaid schism and the general reformation of the church in its head and members. It likewise declares that if anyone of whatever condition, rank, or dignity, the papal itself included, shall uh, continuously refuse obedience to the commands, statutes, ordinance, or precepts of any of this or any other ecumenical council legitimately assembled in retaliation to the aforesaid matters acted upon or to be acted upon unless he shall repent, shall be subjected to uh, condign penance and be duly punished. We have here a declaration that an ecumenical council is the superior of a Pope in point of authority. Okay. That's a huge deal. So they're saying that if you do try to get your local cardinals to elect another pope, it will not only not be seen, but it will be condemned and it will be more or less heretical. You will have to repent of it. It will be a, you know, a, a living in sin uh, so much in that way. Okay. So um, 
Pope Martin V, okay, he was not fully reconciled to the notion of the council's superiority. Why would he be? He's the Pope. Why, you know, I can just act uh, uh, like the other popes did. Why should I bother? But the problem that he had is that he owed his official elevation to the action of the council. So he couldn't say to the council, I don't like what you said. It's wrong. I overrule it. And they're like, well, we said that you're Pope. Oh, oh, yeah. Okay. So I can't overrule what you said. Because at the same time you're saying it, you're also saying that I'm Pope. So uh, that becomes you know, kind of a, a sticking point for him. So he has to find another way around it. And um, it just so happens that at, at this point in time, he puts out what's called a papal bull. Okay. And this is you know, him authoritatively saying something um, that agrees with what the council has said. Okay. So... He, and, he, and he does this at the Council of Basel, and, um, and he said that the, the council is superior over the pope. Okay. Um, so on one hand stands the decree of the council and the confirmatory sentence of the pope, and on the other hand, and in direct contradiction of the foregoing, stands the decree of the pope and the consent of the council. So you have the pope saying, I'm pope, I should be in control uh, so this council needs to recognize that. And, and then you have a council saying no. So you got councils contradicting each other. You have the Pope contradicting himself and this happens. Um, and so this becomes, you know, kind of an issue here. Um, but it doesn't seem to last very long because the council of Basel, when it, when it opens, when it starts, um, the uh, Pope Martin V uh, passes away, he dies. And then his successor, uh, Eugenius the uh, fourth, you know, I keep looking at my Roman numerals and going through them in my head. Um, uh, he is, he comes along and he transfers the council uh, to Bologna and he has various pretenses to cover up his real motive in, in what he wants to do. Um, starts by stirring up the Pope's opposition, okay? Without regard to his appropriation, uh, approbation, uh, the council was formally opened December 14th, 1431. At the second session in in February 15th, 1432, the decrees pass at Constance respecting the supreme authority of the council, okay, and they're renewed. In subsequent sessions, the Pope was addressed as a subject rather than as a master and was commanded to revoke the decrees of dissolution and to present himself at Basel. Okay. For a time, um, Pope Eugenius, the fourth totally ignored him. He didn't care. He was like, whatever. I'm the Pope. I don't care. All right. But eventually he consented and acknowledged the council and then sent, um, uh, legates to represent him in its uh, session in the next year in 1433. Uh, the, the assembly now assumed very worthy proportions. And besides the plan of an agreement with the Hussites, and we'll get into the Hussites of uh, the fathers of John Huss later on. Um, but there are some important measures that were passed. Number one, they said, we are going to limit um, the papal reservations um you know, opposing any uh, hasty imposition and inter- any interdictions, anything like that. Um, 
reform legislation is going to be put in place, um, and it's going to be served as the basis of a pragmatic sanction. Okay, and this was enacted actually by the French government in uh, 1438. Okay, so there was no real formal rupture between the Pope and the Council. The Pope was just kind of ignoring the Council, and the Council was actually had the muscle to you know start um, putting its its pressure on it. But the Pope then wanted to start making amends with the Greek Church. And that started getting people kind of riled up. They were like, "Whoa, whoa, whoa!" Coming back in the fellowship and the with the with the Eastern Church, and maybe this will be the Pope that unifies us under under one, you know, uh, one unified, uh, holy, you know, Catholic meaning universal uh, Church. Okay, so um, in 1438, um, sessions began in in the city of Italy. Uh, in, in an Italian city, uh, some months later, oh. And, owing to the breaking of a pestilence. Okay, Florence was made the seat of the Pope's Synod, and here the Union project with the Greeks was carried forward to its consummation. Meanwhile, the Council of Basel asserted its authority and refused to be dissolved. And so they declared the Pope disposed. They said, you know what? He's not listening to us. He's not Pope anymore. Kicking him out, we're going to elect a new Pope. And, you know, so that's what they decided to do. And so they elected Felix V as Pope. Again, you have two popes in 1438. The problem was that this bold action that was done, the people didn't want it. The people were not buying into it. They were just like, no, you know what? We remember the problems we had before. We're not going to recognize this new pope. So for 10 years, Felix was reigning, and nobody was really recognizing him. The people would not look to him. They would look to uh, Eugenius the, the Fourth as, as the pope. And the nominee of the council, they found such little support, support that they abdicated in 1449. So Felix V stopped being pope. And in making such an unsuccessful venture, the council lost his prestige among the people. And that then turned them into more of a nominal existence. So they fell away. The people refused to acknowledge them. Now it's back to the pope being in control. Okay? You had this one pope. So the pope then has all the power and the popes that are coming up are certainly not going to let that happen again because who was at fault for all of these problems that was going on? It wasn't the people. The people were, they love the church. They love what's going on. They're totally funding. They're just like, they're telling, Hey, straighten this out. And the Pope's now in power. And he's like, you know what? Problems, the Cardinals, if they wouldn't have elected all these popes, we wouldn't have all these problems. So these popes then started becoming much, much, much more political. And you thought these popes were bad before. These next popes that are coming up are just awful. They are in infamy of being horrendous. Okay, Sixtus, it's 
S I X T U S, just so you know, I'm not saying six as in like Sixtus. Sixtus the fourth, Innocent the eighth, and Alexander the sixth. Okay, they. This is like a, a crazy bad time for popes in church history. With Sixtus the fourth, the priestly character of the pope began to vanish, and that of a territorial lord became so prominent that the successors of Peter in that era appeared as representatives of Italian dynasties, only accidentally holding the place of popes and wearing the tiara in place of the crown. These guys were just becoming straight up emperors, straight up kings. Uh, The thoroughly worldly schemes of which the popes now devoted themselves required more than ever the use of worldly means, such as financial speculations, traffic and offenses, and in manners of grace, unprincipled arts of of, uh, statecraft and dominance of nepotism. Never before was nepotism driven with such recklessness. It became the principle of the entire administration of Sixtus IV. Nothing could wear a more singular appearance than did this illegitimate product of Rome. It was obvious that this guy was just, I mean, horrible. His, the the protégés were like, you know, bastards of the Pope, you know, I mean, he would put his children in place. His family would be put in place. Nepotism was the reigning system of the Roman state. Okay. It gave into the hands of the Pope and administration uh, party and also means of offsetting the opposition of cardinals. So what's he doing? He's getting rid of the cardinals that would cause problems and putting his family members, his people into place. This is becoming like a party system in the United States that, you know, that's eroded our representative Republic by going to a two party system. And if uh, think about it, if you get one party in control and they control the house and the Senate, and then they control the executive branch and they're all able to not only put laws in place, but then put, um, justices on the Supreme court and justices and all the federal courts everywhere. And it's one party controlling all of courts, one party controlling all of Congress and one party controlling all of the, you know, controlling the executive branch, then what happens is the Republic ceases to function because it's only one control. Totally what's going on here. They are starting to remove that and controlling the Cardinals to make them do what they want them to do. Okay. Now, Sixtus was, you know, just as bad because his nephews, you know, he was allowing them to buy their way in their influence, like all this stuff, you know, he was, you know, another Pope right after it that he was able to have this type of vanity and extortion and faithlessness. And he was just like totally hated. And when he died, like people like totally rejoiced. Okay. And it it was just like, Oh man. So what's going to be done now? Well, these, the Cardinals who were electing the popes totally stacked. So who's the next one in line? And that would be innocent the eighth. Okay. And innocent the eighth, he reigned between uh, 1484 and 1492, just so we can have a, a date stamped on where we're at here. Remember Martin Luther nailed the 95 thesis to the door of Wittenberg to formally start what, what some people would say formally started the German reformation in 1517. Okay. So you have all this stuff going on beforehand. Now, innocent the eighth, 
He only cared about promoting his numerous children, okay? He would sell offices to them. They would sell offices. They were totally shameless with it. They didn't even care. They would, people would know that they were selling it, and they, they didn't care. It was just a total way that they were, you know, they were doing this, and they were trying to, to destroy the Hussites and anybody else that was trying to, you know, reform the church in, in, in the way that it had done before because they don't want additional cardinals. They don't want, you know, people uh, changing things and doing this stuff. They like the way that it was gone. I mean, they would say that, you know, these reformers were practicing witchcraft and, you know, all kinds of other propaganda and stuff like that. All right. So after he dies, then Alexander the sixth takes, takes place. Okay. And he's representing a, a Spanish family that was able to buy their influence and, and get in here. And he stands by general consent of the climax of papal wickedness. Okay. I mean, Gee, when you talk about how bad like Innocent VIII was, like some people said that he had like, you know, seven children born to different mothers. Okay. And some say that he had like up to 16. All right. Now, Alexander the the sixth here who reigned, you know, until 1503, you want to talk about like bribery to secure his election. First off, adulterous connections, which gave him five children. Um, his love for his children and insatiate thirst to advance them to princely greatness. He's actually seeing himself as some type of dynasty, some type of king. It ceases to be what the word Pope means, means Papa, means father, a spiritual leader. This is not a spiritual leadership type thing anymore. This is now a huge political engine that is just you know driving itself and money is what's driving it okay his i mean he oh dude he overcame every sentiment of righteousness and shame like he just he did not care okay the property he would even seize the property of dead cardinals okay and he would call that the rights of the spoils and say this is mine this is mine even if they gave it to their children even if it was in their family he didn't care he took it it was his rome was in fact terrorized and Christendom ruled in the interest of, of the bastards of a Pope, you know, because these kids were married uh, you know, they're born out of wedlock. He wasn't married, you know, so they, they're running the thing. Okay. And, you know, virtue of his position, he, and he was supposed to champion priestly celibacy and look at, you know, look at what he's doing. His son was actually, they think one of the ones, controlling things like, you know, doing stuff, pulling the strings, making things happen at a banquet. Okay. It got so bad that the Pope, um, the, uh, assessor and the Cardinal, his son and, and his son and the Cardinal were there and all three of them got sick. And some people think that they were poisoned and then the Pope dies. Okay. And then his son who does live was eventually like, you know, ran off and was able to, you know, hide and hide in another another country. Um, but then Leo the 10th took over and Leo the 10th ruled from 1513 to 1521, right in the center of the German reformation. Okay. And he was equally as secular in, in his tone. And he was just about military strategy and the arts of diplomacy. Okay. Because the Pope before him, um, uh, well, uh, Julius the second came in between, sorry, in, in between, um, uh, the, these, um, two popes here, I'm, I'm losing Alexander, the four Alexander, Alexander, the sixth 
and um, uh, Leo the Tenth. Yeah, Julius the Second. He was like a war like pontiff. I mean, he just wanted to go to war and you know just just you know conquer lands and and do things and just impose on other peoples and other princes and principalities and all that stuff. And he was taken over. Where Leo was very secular, Leo the Tenth, but he was in the art of diplomacy, and you know. He was was a patron that his only intent was on worldly advantage. He did nothing to appease the growing demand of reform. People were crying out they wanted reform. They wanted this stuff to happen. And he refused to do it because he wasn't a theologian. He was a politician. He couldn't go head to head with any theologian. All right. He was a politician, a businessman. He thought himself as a king, an emperor. And this is why you can see that at this time period, it was so ripe of a time for people to fall in line behind somebody like a Martin Luther because, you know, people want reform. And that's why when you have this type of pope, this type of pontificate, that it, everything just broke forth with irresistible energy and began to revolutionize the face of Europe. That is the climate, the climate around Martin Luther coming up and what's happening before the German Reformation. Now, we're going to have to talk about the reformers that came before Martin Luther and theologically what's leading up. I only got to like a fraction of my notes again. Um, I haven't even gotten to the uh, talk about the humanists either and their influence here, but I, I, I hear the music playing. So... We're going to cut this off, and this is sort of going to be a part one, and I guess our history is going to go into a part two. But, um, hey, if you like what you're hearing, uh, send me a message on Facebook at The Theology Pit. You can email me, samson at samsonstick.com, or send a donation. That's always nice. But now I think it's time, definitely, to close down the pit.